0: Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan?
1: Thank God, Mike. Doing okay.
0: All right. Well, let's get straight to our today's uh, very important
1: guest. Would you introduce her, please? Oh, I'd be honored um, to introduce Miri Eisen, who served as the Israeli Prime Minister's spokesperson from the Second Lebanese War until the end of 2007. She now teaches at the IDC in Herzliya and works extensively with the media, student groups, and diplomats. Miri is a fellow at the Center for International Communication at Barilán University and an associate at the International Institute for Counterterrorism. She's also a board member of the Font Forum, Women in Foreign Policy and National Security, and the Taub Center for Social Policy Studies in Israel. Amiri got her start uh, in the Israeli intelligence community and is a retired full colonel who retired in 2004, and over a 20-year career in the military, she served in diverse positions in the field, combat units, and research departments. Uh, in academia, she holds a a BA from Tel Aviv University in Middle Eastern Studies and Political Science, an MA from Haifa University in Security Studies, and is a graduate of the Israeli National Defense College. And with all of that, it doesn't mention probably even half the things that Mary does. Because I know, in terms of Gapir, we have uh, seen her a lot. She has spoken. We, we had the Core 18 fellowship, and she's involved with our impact. And I know she's a very popular speaker. And of course, seeing her and hearing her on radio and television in the Israeli in the Israeli world. So this is really uh, a very very short um, uh, bio, even though it seemed a little bit long. Well, thanks thank for, joining you us, so much for joining us, Mary. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you very much. And whenever people read my bio, I'm like, who is that person? I do need to add for those who have not met me that I was born in the States so that my very American accent is because I was born there. But I think of myself as an Israeli who speaks really American English.
0: Well, that sounds good. Unfortunately, after reading your CV, we have no more time. So thanks for coming. (laughs) No, we really appreciate it, and we were we were really hoping uh, you could shed some light on what's going on in the border in Lebanon. Everybody's very concerned about it. We mentioned while we were recording last week, the news was just breaking about the massive explosion, and I've already talked to some people in the States who are sort of confused. Should I be feeling optimistic, pessimistic? The protests seem like their heart's in the right place, the government's resigning. so. You know, part of what we do on this podcast is we give people insight behind the headlines and you're you're exactly who we wanted to talk to, to help us understand what's going on in Lebanon
2: and what it means for Israel. Absolutely. It's 2020. It's the summer. And we look right now and go, oh my God, the worst explosion you can think of happened because of negligence, because of incompetence. Can that be what we're talking about, Lebanon? Lebanon is a very odd country. It isn't really similar to any other of the countries of the Middle East. It has a unique governance system, and I'm gonna introduce all sorts of different terms that I'm pretty sure most of you have never heard of, but the idea is to understand why, yes, I am optimistic, and I'm totally pessimistic at the exact same time, welcome to the (laughs) Middle East, but with the unique case of Lebanon. So should I dive on in?
0: Oh, please.
2: Oh, yes. Okay. So Lebanon is a country that was established post-World War Two. sorry, post-World War One. like most of the Middle Eastern countries, only it was under a um, um, French mandate. Um, we all kind of remember Palestine under the British mandate, and, of course, you have the different British countries. Why does it matter that it was under a French mandate? So, first of all, it means that very French point of view of uh, fraternité, égalité, and you know, there's that whole aspect of the French Revolution. They do have that. The French have had a strong influence over specific, I'm going to use the word clans. I don't want to use the word tribes, because I think that tribal is not the way to describe Lebanon. But Lebanon itself has an enormous different type of religions and um, other um, different types of groups inside their society and they are very much built on family clans why am i giving you this background because they built a governing system there which exists to 2020 which is not like anybody else and i introduce you to the term by confession what in the world does that mean it means that inside their parliament inside their government in their elections it's always based on count them ladies and gentlemen 18, 18, 18 different religious denominations. So we saw the explosion, and you all said Lebanon. We saw people coming out into the street protesting the government. But you need to understand that in their government, the prime minister is always a Sunni Muslim. The defense minister is always a Maronite Christian. The speaker of the house is always a Shiite Muslim. And the um, I I could keep on going in that list. The president is always a Maronite Christian. And I give you just that in some of the background because the list is such a long list, it's very confusing. So is Lebanon now as a country with these 18 different official confessions with this different type of representation, is it suddenly gonna stand up and be functional? That's where I am pessimistic. I don't think that's going to change. They don't know how to get their act together because they are very clannish, meaning when push comes to shove, they more remember if they are Maronite Christian, which is a Catholic church, or if they are Armenian Catholic, Armenian Orthodox, Greek Catholic, Greek Orthodox, if they are Druze, if they are Sunni, if they are Shiite, you notice my numbers keep on going up to the 18, and within that, which family clan they belong to. Sorry now, for the long I explanation. Ask,
0: but why did the French set it up that way? If they believed in Egalité and Fraternité, why, why did they set up such a stratified system of religious representation, written into the rules of how their government's supposed to work?
2: The idea was really to try and get everybody represented there. They were very worried, otherwise, that it wouldn't be representative all of the countries of the Middle East were put together by outer forces. This isn't something that came from within, but when I say it in those terms, I'm looking at it from a Western liberal point of view. The French imposed a French liberal point of view on what existed there. The French themselves were mostly interested in having the ones that they supported, which were the Catholic Maronites that I've already mentioned before. Those are the ones who were very much into French culture, into the French language, with strong hundreds of years of connection with France. They wanted to give them a country with a little bit more. What's happened over the last 100 years, in its own way, is very sad because the numbers have not stayed the same. Just to make things worse than what we just described, the way they have the governance there, the way they have the parliament there, is based on a census. Everybody knows a census. There's a census every 10 years ago. You count all of the people. In Lebanon, the last time they did a census to define the different confessions that I just mentioned before was in 1932. And in the last 90 years, Things have changed a lot in Lebanon. And part of what's coming out into the street is because of that. There are way more Muslims than Christians than there were 100 years ago. There are a lot more Shiites than Sunnis than there were 100 years ago. And when I say those words, suddenly I'm connecting to the rest of the Middle East, to Syria, to Iran, to other problems.
0: I mean, the Christians were even a minority then, that the French were trying to give a certain advantage, yes? Even back, so the, and it did work sure. for decades, didn't it?
2: So again, I mean, the history of Lebanon, on the one hand, it is very exceptional. It was the country that was much more modern, much more educated, in our terms, much more Western, so we may have mm-hmm. felt more comfortable. It was the place that you could go to to be cool and outside and funky in the Middle East. But let's talk about the past. They, they been, was like the Riviera,
0: then, right? It was the...
2: But all of that is pretty old news. That's why it's kind Mm -hmm. of pretty sad. They broke down, the system broke down already 50 years ago in the 1970s, it broke down into a civil war. And ever since that civil war ended in the 1990s, they have not been functional. Why have they not been functional? Exactly because of the point that you just said. The Maronites who have 30% of the parliament and they're always the prime minister and they're always the defense minister, are probably only 10% of the population, if that. And everybody wants to change that, except for the Maronites. Everybody wants to change that, except they're not sure what would happen if they really would have a census and try and build that type of a governance again. Don't be against this type of governance, because it's actually what exists in Switzerland, and in Belgium, and in Holland, but what can I tell you? We're in the Middle East, it doesn't work in the same way.
1: Was, it, was the shift, the population shift due to flight, birth rates, the, the effects of the Civil War, like what, what has been this major shift?
2: So it's all of the above, just like anywhere in the world. The Christians overwhelmingly inside Lebanon, and just to get it right, so that you're not off right now, Alan, there are 12 different Christian denominations by confession that are right. officially recognized in there um, as being having their, their own representation, which is crazy in itself. But um, the Christians overwhelmingly have been more educated, They have, they are the ones who were richer. I I don't, I mean, it's like, it sounds so terrible, but that's the way it was Mm. in Lebanon. They were the ones who held the assets and they were also the ones who emigrated. And as they were more educated, their birth rates went down. So they emigrated and their birth Mm. rates went down and they're the rich people. Does that not sound like here you are, that's where the revolution starts? So the numbers that have changed dramatically are the percentage of Shiite versus Sunni, uh, sorry, um, Muslim versus Christian, the 12 Christian Mm. denominations and the four Muslim denominations. They, in an odd way, um, they they divided into Shiite, Sunni, Alawite, Nasiri, and they actually put the Druze as Muslim, even though the Druze are not Muslim at all. Mm. But as you see, each one is a different one. And the numbers that have changed dramatically are the Muslim versus Christian, and within the Muslim, the Shiite versus Sunni. And the governance has stayed the same. The president is Maronite, the prime minister is Sunni, but the largest Mm -hmm. bulk of the population is Shiite. And when I say Shiite, Mm -hmm. I'm suddenly in the Hezbollah and Iranian world. And so suddenly you go, there's this whole issue, which is a domestic Lebanese issue, But over the last two decades, that aspect of the Shiites, the numbers, Iran and Hezbollah have come into domestic Lebanese politics.
0: And do we have a sense of the proportion of the Shia who would be under the Hezbollah and Iranian influence in Lebanon? So, without a census.
2: You're right. Without a census, nobody knows. So, I like going into, you know, you look up. And in Lebanon, this is a huge issue. Because everybody understands that the numbers have changed. So I want to tell you something about Hezbollah, which isn't going to be anti-Hezbollah, which is ridiculous because I'm Mary and I'm a colonel, and my name is Israeli. <laughs> but Hezbollah is a terror organization. And after its aspect as a terror army and against Israel, it also is Arabic-speaking Lebanese Shiites. That's where it started. And after it yay for them, right? Kicked Israel out of Lebanon exactly 20 years ago in May of 2000 from their point of view. They Mm -hmm. transitioned into domestic Lebanese politics because they are Arabic-speaking Lebanese Shiites. So they are both a tool of Iran, funded by Iran, trained by Iran, continuing terror, continuing to want to free Al-Quds or Jerusalem. But at the same time, in domestic Lebanese politics, they've been trying to up the representation and the money that goes to the Shiites of Lebanon. They're Lebanese citizens, and they've always been the poor, the ones who don't get it in Israeli terms, as somebody who's from here, the periphery, just like mm-hmm. here, you know, people who don't live right. in the greater central area of Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Beersheba and live further away. And so their healthcare isn't the same. I mean, we know that it's like wonderful people, but they get less. Education, culture, same goes for the Shiites in Lebanon. They live further away from the center. They've never gotten the money. And the Lebanese Hezbollah in the parliament managed to change the numbers. There's more representation now for the Muslims in parliament. So you're all going, wow, she's like giving, you know, (laughs) Hezbollah. And I'm going, guys, they didn't do it through the egalite, eh, eh, fraternite. (laughs) Uh, No, they didn't do it through democratic things. It's like, uh, Mike, you don't agree with me? I blow you up. Mm -hmm. Alan, you're probably going to agree with me. And and they managed to change the representation, but they did it by blowing up people who didn't agree with them. Um, They blew up the together with Syria um, one of the Lebanese prime ministers um, yeah. and that was a whole additional aspect that was supposed to come out last week because there was an international inquiry into that enormous explosion too
0: and 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 they 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 have increased their numbers but there's still a minority within What's essentially, you know, that type of coalition government could be productive in everybody having a say, but it also could lead to stalemate and inability to function if everybody has a say, which so my sounds like Lebanon is the you, latter.
2: Right, but that's my response to you is that's such a nice yeah. thing to say, Mike. Lebanon is not an open, free democracy. Right. They're not a Western right. democracy. They were modeled on a democracy just like every single country of the Middle East except for Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia was never conquered. Okay, I mean they came to be independently as their own very Muslim monarchy. All of the other countries were modeled either by the French or by the British and all of them because of that, we talk in these democratic terms of freedom, of representation, of separation, of you know, all the different things that we're supposed to have in a democracy. Lebanon has the structure, but it has never had the follow through. And they have been dysfunctional as a government and as a parliament for many, many years. I mean, I I don't like to joke about it because it's very sad, but Mm -hmm. I want to see any of our nice you know, gap year students living in a country where they don't know how to take away the garbage. Things that you don't want to think about. But you know what happens when the government doesn't take away the garbage? So what happens a lot, even in Judea and Samaria, we see that because of the dysfunction of the Palestinian Authority, is that then people burn garbage. Because it's really gross otherwise. So do you want to live like that? And Lebanon has not been able as a country to remove the garbage. They had three, four years ago what they called garbage protests. That you guys have this government. You as if have the structure, but you don't do anything. And right now we're in the COVID-19 health disaster. And the Ministry of Health in Lebanon. I told you guys that Hezbollah joined the political system. They work as if it's, you know, the Mafia or, well, not exactly, but similar. But the health minister happens to be from from Hezbollah. He's a Lebanese Shiite, so suddenly Hezbollah is the one that's responsible for health. Why did they take that position from the beginning? because they actually wanted to give back to their constituents. They wanted to Mm -hmm. build health clinics and give healthcare because probably, and this comes back to the question that you keep asking, most likely um, Shiites are around 50% of the Lebanese population. Lebanon is around five and a half, six million people. Again, they don't count, um, but most likely around half are Shiites and that scares everybody totally. Nobody wants to count because of that.
0: Well, except for the Ayatollah and the mullahs in Iran, who are very happy to have to increase their hegemony in the Middle East by having all these Shia Muslims in Lebanon.
2: Absolutely. But they're not they're not if they wanted to come in and just take over. That's one thing. But they Mm -hmm. want it to come from within. Part of the challenge is that Hezbollah is a Lebanese terror organization against Israel. It's funded by Iran. But here you get to the challenge that I have, the exact same challenge with Hamas. They want the authority, but they don't want the responsibility. So what happened last week? You have a dysfunctional government, nobody really works at anything, and the port area is an area where Hezbollah kind of played whatever they wanted with. They didn't bring in that ammonium nitrate, but it didn't go anywhere. And right now, nobody in Lebanon is willing to take responsibility. They're all pointing the finger in a different direction. And look at what they did is that they resigned. And then people came up to them and said, really, you're resigning now? Who's going to take responsibility? But if you look around, to me, the scariest part is that one of the most, if not the most, charismatic, Arabic-speaking, Muslim preacher... Is Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General mm. of Hezbollah. He is mm. very, very. Um, he he he's a real orator, like old-fashioned kind. But he does right. it today and on TV, and 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 that's scary. That he's like the voice that when he talks. So we like to note how people are going against him, because we aren't necessarily looking at the places where everybody is for him. Um, mm. There are lots of Maronites, Maronites Christian. Catholic Maronites who think that Hassan Nasrallah protects them more from Sunni jihadi extremism Mm -hmm. and would rather accept that type of leadership than any other kind.
0: Make Lebanon great again. Uh Sort of the sense of, you know, Lebanon first, sort of.
2: That's what's happening right now with the present Maronite president of um, Lebanon. He's a Maronite. And he is totally, people go, he's under a trance. And I'm like, you're looking at it from the outside. Mm When you look at it from the inside, you're gonna see different threats. Lebanon wants to exist as a country. They want to exist separately from Syria. They have, as I say again, I emphasize, Hassan Nasrallah is not a Persian-speaking Iranian. He's mm-hmm. a Arabic-speaking Lebanese-born Shiite, so that we, we don't look at it that way. We're so used to seeing Hezbollah as a tool of Iran that we're not always wow. aware how much the Shiites are an important group and that they view the Maronites, the Christians, as the ones who have always looked down their nose and mm-hmm. never given them enough and not developed roads and not developed clinics and not developed education haven't given back um, and they've always felt that way inside Lebanon
0: well i think a lot yeah, of what? countries it's not just a lebanese story so many countries by the way i think israel also as as the american hegemony as the pax americana sort of the superpower nature of america shrinks so countries are looking east in different or north or different directions for who to ally with so Lebanon they're also looking around and, and the Maronites which looked so far west can say so now well they'll... maybe we should be looking further east Yeah, I'm,
2: I'm not disagreeing with you I'm just saying that the challenge is that who is it when you say Lebanon and I right. go back to the fact that there are the 18 different conf- mm-hmm. confessional groups that are the ones that are recognized um, and let me just add in that there are two enormous groups in Lebanon that aren't part of the 18 confessional groups that at least, as if, are part of the system. The one relates directly to Israel, and that's the Palestinian refugees, who mm-hmm. arrived there in 1948, they're probably around 400 to 450,000, that's almost half a million people, Whoa. that's a lot of people, okay? Yeah. They're not part of the percent
1: country. 10% of the country.
2: Okay? But they're not. They're not counted within the country. They 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 all they're not allowed to leave the refugee camps. I'm talking refugee camps from 1948. They do not have Lebanese citizenship. They do not have Lebanese residency. Their life has been run by the United Nations Relief and Welfare Agency, UNRWA, that we all detest, but for them that's their lifeline. Many of those are ones who have emigrated. They'll have left. But but they're still hundreds of thousands who live in Lebanon and have no status and have not had it from 1948. And add on to that, much worse, Alan and Mike, over a million Syrian refugees who are mainly Sunni. They left Syria as Sunnis, and so suddenly you have this enormous influx of a religion But with all sorts of different aspects to it, and then suddenly you go that Maronite who thinks that the Lebanese Shiite will protect him against the Sunni jihadi extremism, Mm -hmm. that's where it comes from. In the last former um, ISIS supporters
0: pouring in and we'll turn to Nasrallah to help Hezbollah keep them Absolutely and in
2: the last decade. Um, it's written the official number that the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees has. um, There are over five and a half million Syrian refugees that left Syria officially. A million are in Lebanon, three and a half million are in Turkey. So those are the two main sites. Um, Officially, it's not that much that's in um, Jordan. But the thing with Lebanon is that it's a million officially. And nobody knows what the unofficial number is because there's no Mm. real border. It's kind of like U.S.-Canada. There's no Mm. fence. You know, people walk over and there are hundreds of thousands of people. They don't have jobs. And we have COVID-19. And I just, Mm. I add that in because, again, so what is Lebanon today? Um, The Syrian refugees aren't going home because the Sunnis who go back to Syria get to go home and go, hi, where was I? I was in Lebanon. They've lost their homes. Um, they've lost the deeds, the titles to their houses. All of that has happened because they left. So they're not going home. They have nothing to go home for, and right. nobody else in the world will allow them in. Have I depressed do, do everybody we, enough until now? Yeah. Just,
0: <laughs> well, I we're still wondering. waiting for the optimistic part. But yeah. let, Alan had a question, I think.
1: I was just wonder I had a bunch of questions. i just go. Uh, I was wondering if we know how they're doing in terms of COVID nineteen at all in Lebanon, or there's no real way to measure
2: that? So the the, the odd thing is that throughout the Middle Eastern world, um, Lebanon until six months ago, because Lebanon started to fall apart before COVID-19. They started to fall apart, again, dysfunctional. Okay, they just their their banking system, their finance system fell apart. Last year, there were enormous demonstrations there last year before COVID-19. But the one thing that they had is they have a very strong, very well built private health system in the entire greater Arabic-speaking Middle East, when they had to do any, because none of them have you know, good universal healthcare, so you do it privately, and where do you go? You go to Lebanon. Because Lebanon is a very interesting comp- con- uh, country that's built on a lot of expats, meaning North American Lebanese, Chilean, Mm. Lebanese, they're they're all over the world and they send money back and many of them go Mm -hmm. and study. They have a really good health system. So that was very good for them at the beginning of COVID-19, but it's a private system. Guess who doesn't get treated in the private system? Poor people. Periphery. Periphery. Who's the periphery? Shiites. Okay, right.
1: Even though they control the health ministry
2: the health ministry, but not the health system. And so that was part of the gap there, is can you impose now on all of these private hospitals to do what needs to be done, because it's a private system. Um, Very, very challenging. I I have nothing good to say about that in that sense. So in COVID-19, the World Health Organization follows it, really until a few weeks ago, throughout the Middle Eastern world, the exception was Iran. All of the other countries had relatively low numbers, and I don't think it's because they're lying. I think it's because they don't do a lot of testing, but it also, they haven't seen peaks and deaths. Mm. And um, Iran is hit hard. Iran is hit hard for a variety of reasons. One is because when you continue to kick the, kiss the mezuzah, in this case the different shrines, in March and in April, and all the religious people go and kiss the mezuzah and the shrines in March and in April, then your country is going to get COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So we haven't been doing greatly as of late, but, but there, it's unbelievable. The religious people were saying this is stupid and nothing, and, and the religious people didn't do anything, so everybody got sick. I mean, they literally are in horrific numbers. And the second thing is that they actually had a direct connection to China um, I have a feeling mm-hmm. that they got it very heavily from China at the beginning. There was still an open direct line there for quite a long while. And so even oh. though China shut down, um, they had a whole... They had 5,000 Iranian students in China who came home in March. Yay! Let's yeah. bring it home. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so they got it yeah. really bad.
0: Yeah,
2: And that's impacted Hezbollah a bit.
0: Okay, so the optimism comes from... <laughs>
2: Okay, the optimism. They have an enormous youth. It's an educated youth. Even when we say half the population is probably Shiite, Sunni, Lebanon comparatively did have a relatively educated base. In and I say that to the good, not to the bad. Mm-hmm. And they're coming out now and they're trying to build something new. They're trying to, to say, you know, we're all here. We're all stuck here. Let's try and find a new glue. And you know, and and they're talking about it. And that really does give hope. The issue is that there won't be, we we can't expect one leader who's going to unite Lebanon. Mm -hmm. What it needs is it takes really literally 20 different leaders of 20 different groups who are in their 30s to start talking to each other. And that Mm -hmm. is happening, meaning that younger generation is starting to talk to each other in a different way. Um, I'm more optimistic on the Sunni and different groups and Christian different groups. The Shiites. The jury's out on that one, guys. Um, mm-hmm. Very challenging. Um, I'm gonna say and very challenging.
1: 50%, and they're 50 percent, and they're 50 percent about. Yeah, of most
2: likely, and they're the ones who are that. That. But. I'm saying something so negative right now. I hate I seeing good out of such a negativity, okay? But Iran right now is in a really challenging place. Yay, I say. Right. And for them to continue to export the amount of money, manpower, and influence that they did to Hezbollah up until COVID-19 and not into their own 85 million people country that they have um, is having a very negative effect inside their own country which means that Iran right now is not going to be able to give Hezbollah what it gave them in the past. That's harsh, but it actually has potential.
0: Yeah, hopefully Um, it could lead to change in the Shiite community in Lebanon to not be so dependent
2: on them. And I'm saying that because, again, I remind myself, the Shiites of Lebanon are Lebanese Arabic speaking. Mm -hmm. The Iraqi Shiites... Have turned on Iran. Okay?
1: Mm-hmm. And that
2: happened in Iraq. And in Iraq, they are a majority. They're 60%. And the fact that right now there's a possibility that Iran won't be able to invest, because if you invest and you build roads and hospitals and educational facilities, then people are going to, you know, they, you put your money where your mouth is. But if they can't do that now, if, and this is an if, the other confessions that's the official term in that sense the other denominations the other groups inside Lebanon understand that there's an opportunity here to bring the shiites into the Lebanese crowd cuz the Lebanese shiites have never really felt part of the bigger group now i want to do that and say that with all of the challenges that we see in democracies worldwide with mm. those who feel that they are mm. under you know oppression that they're the ones who have never been at, okay. We, we see how that works in a democracy. Right. What's it going to happen inside a place like Lebanon? All
0: right. Well, it's a it's a <laughs> it's it's a, a metered optimism. It's a uh, but but at least it's. You know what? Yeah. One good well, that-
2: thing that came out. Well, it's not a question if I say that. Of the good thing, um, Hassan Nasrallah has to talk in Arabic to the Lebanese. He's been called out. And and I'm waiting to see what he's gonna say. Is mm-hmm. he going to answer as the forefront of the Shiite revolutionary Iranian type world, but not just Iranian? Or is he going to address Lebanon? Because over the last month or two under COVID-19, he's been talking Lebanese more than Shiite revolution. That is a very cautious, I'm not optimistic about Hassan Nasrallah. He wants to destroy Israel. But if his rhetoric is not focused on us, that's a good thing.
0: Well, I wish we had a two-hour podcast, Mary. So we'll have to have you back to explain more to us. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Can't thank you enough.
2: I am happy to come back.
0: Oh, we're going to hold you to that. (laughs)
1: We have it on recording. We
0: have it recorded.
1: (laughs) That'll be my pleasure. Thank you
0: so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alan.
1: Thank you, Mike.
0: And I'm gonna end the recording now. Bye bye.